perfection. An impulse that we have, an ideal we gravitate towards. I mean, in your life, haven't you ever wanted, maybe you've actually received the perfect grade on an assignment in school, a project at work, the perfect grade, meaning you got an assignment or a project done right the first time. No red ink. No revisions or corrections. The perfect grade. Or have you in your life either given or received the perfect gift? The perfect gift. That experience of giving or receiving from someone else something in mint condition. Still in the original packaging. Flawless. No smudges. No defects. Or how about, though we haven't had this in a while in Southern California, watching the perfect game. Okay, no one got that one. The first service got it. You guys didn't get it. If you're following baseball at all, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. The perfect game. If you, in any athletic competition, there's something magical. There's something rare about the perfect game. A game without errors. A game without any missed calls. A game where there are no mistakes. It just It's transcendent. And then, of course, what about perfect children? I heard a couple of snickers there. Think about them when they're really, really young, Okay. Maybe the first few days. Okay. <laughs> you see, you're playing right with who I want to, and I'm, I'm alluding to perfection with children because I'm talking about the difference between us as adults. No, and children, that perfection of no, no cynicism, no sarcasm, but the perfection, perfect innocence of children where it's all just fascination, wonder, and awe. Perfection. We have glimpses of it, moments in our lives. And in fact, some of us are so driven towards perfection that for some of us, it's an obsession that haunts us. Some of us in this room are victim to what's known as perfectionism. That just relentless drive to be perfect, to have to be perfect. And then the rest of us are not so sentimental. The rest of us go, well, yeah, perfection, that sounds great in theory. That's awesome. But we all know that nobody's perfect. So which is it? Is perfection a fantasy? Is it a pipe dream? Is it a lost cause? Or is perfection a realistic expectation, a definite possibility, a promise that can be fulfilled? That word, that, that idea is a, the way I want to reframe our return to the book of Leviticus this morning. We've taken a couple of weeks away, but as we come back, I want us to think about Leviticus in terms of perfection. Because in many ways, as Leviticus instructs us on worship, a vocabulary of worship, a life of worship, it, it deals with, interacts with this ideal of perfection. I mean, you have this perfect God, the perfection of God being emphasized. You have this Emphasis on sacrifices that are perfect, pure and blameless and flawless. But then you have the contrast in the midst of that. The, the tension in Leviticus is that all of this is amongst an imperfect people. The problem of sin is just drawn out in Leviticus. And in fact, starting there, the, the perfection by way of imperfection, sin is emphasized for us in Leviticus as we've seen in a very, very powerful way. And one way to think of sin is sin is independence, living independently in our relationship from God and living independently in our relationship with, from each other, living so disconnected, so self-centered that more often than not we're oblivious to how disconnected and self-centered we are in our relationship with God and with each other. And the result of that kind of life, that kind of sinful life, is that we make mistakes. There are accidents around us all the time. There are oversights. And what we saw right from the outset is God, in kind of laying out that understanding of sin, provides for the people a way to deal for those kind of mistakes, those accidents, those oversights, that inevitably are going to happen in a broken world, in a sinful world on a daily basis. The day-to-day -day sacrifices, specifically the sin and the guilt offerings, are the means for the people to be able to function in the midst of just a chaotic, broke-down world. But as you remember, I hope, as the book of Leviticus progresses, if we thought that was the problem of sin, it gets a lot bigger. A lot bigger for us. That, in fact, the problem of sin is bigger than we even imagined or realized. And, and that stopping point of Leviticus 16, where we last left off um, last time, is what we encounter is something we never think about, which is, in the midst of all the mistakes, the accidents, the sin, there is trace remnants. There's residue. From all the things that go wrong that build up, gradually builds up. I mean, in our own lives, we experience this. There's thousands upon thousands of seemingly, at the time, inconsequential snubs, slights, jabs that don't seem like a big deal, but they fester over time. And they end up creating a, 
a residue, a, a film, like, like a grime on, in the kitchen or in, on a carpet. And then there's the, the bigger problem that a lot of times the things that go wrong in our lives, the things that are wrong in our lives, are un- we're unaware of, they're unrealized. I mean, God provides for when we, we, it, it comes to our attention, the mistakes, the accidents, the oversights, but there's a whole bunch of stuff we never even realize. We never even realize that we've wronged anyone. Or even in the moment that we've been wronged. And added on to that, then there's those categories of all those things that happen in our lives that are unacknowledged, that we get defensive about. That's not my fault. I didn't do it. That's not my responsibility. That sort of sit there because, you know, well, what, who, who, who resolves it? I mean, think about it in the course of your life. Think about, think about all the dings, all the cracks, all the dents that have been inflicted upon you, that we inflict on each other. We, we don't even recognize most of the time. How often have we been victim of someone hitting our car and they didn't leave a note? Maybe they saw it, maybe they didn't realize it. How often do we, again, prick each other, wound each other, and when it's, in the moment we just say, oh, it's just a scratch, you'll be fine. But what Leviticus draws out is this problem of sin, this residue, the unrecognized, the unacknowledged things, they build up, and these marks cut deeper than we realize. And that around us, in us, there are fractures, there are scars, there's internal bleeding going on that we sometimes are never even aware of. And so God in his grace in the midst of that kind of imperfection in Leviticus 16 sets apart an entire day once a year to deal with these deeper ramifications of the brokenness of our lives. The day of atonement. And as we looked at it last time, it's a game changer. It's a game changer because it's God's way of literally providing a deep, intensive, and exhaustive cleaning of the house. Cleaning of the tabernacle, the centerpiece of the community, but cleaning of our house, the house of our lives. We are the temple, our lives. It's this exhaustive, you'll recall, collection and removal of all the garbage, all the muck and the grime in our lives and our communities. Scouring, laying our hands on the goat, declaring it all out loud, getting it all. And gathering it up, calling it out, and hauling it to a place far, far away. The Day of Atonement is this incredible gift from God because it's a... It's about a fresh start. It's a clean slate. It's a new beginning. If you will, it's the perfect day. How many of us in our lives have ever experienced, or maybe if we just have wanted just the perfect day? You got up and you prayed, could today just be perfect? We just, we just would take that, just the perfect day. Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, is God giving us the perfect day. Because it's a fresh start. It's a clean slate. It's a new beginning. And in looking at that, that's awesome. Who could ask for anything more? We take that, right? That would be enough. But as we're going to see this morning, apparently that's not enough for our Heavenly Father. Apparently that was never the intention from our Father from the beginning. I'm going to ask Charity to come forward, and I want to prepare you this morning. You're going to be doing some serious movement with your fingers. Because on the one hand, I want you to open up to Leviticus 16. Put your finger there so you can refer back to it. That's page 81 in your pew Bible. But we're going to hear from the, much, much later in the Bible from the letter to the Hebrews. And the whole letter to the Hebrews in many ways is, is sort of interacting with the Day of Atonement, with Leviticus 16. But we're going to focus in on, Cherish is going to read from chapter 10. And that's page 833. So you kind of want to be able to go back and forth once we get into this. But let's hear in a totally different way about the Day of Atonement through the writer of the Hebrews. Cherish will read to us. So again, page 833. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeatedly, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would not have stopped being offered. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. 
I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And when these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, keep your finger in Leviticus 16, but keep Hebrews 10 open. Because right from the get-go, I want you to see something right at the outset. I want you to see that the writer here in this chapter starts by pointing out the imperfections in the system. The imperfections, the limits of the Day of Atonement. And you see it in verses 1 through 2 with this emphasis on these things are being repeated endlessly again and again, year after year. Because... The atonement, as we looked at it, as it's spelled out in Leviticus 16, it's a gift. I don't want to take away from that. But when you step back, it's really just an annual reset. It's an annual reset. But eventually, you can imagine, in the life of the community, over the decades, let alone the centuries, it starts to feel like a vicious cycle. You know, rinse and repeat. Here we are again. Another year. Here it is again. And we're hitting the reset button. And, and, and the, the writer here is drawing out the... The insecurity, sort of the cracks, that really this is only a surface cleansing. It's not really getting to the heart of the problem. And that's why he just comes right out and says in verse 2, if it could, would they not have stopped being offered? I mean, that basically these sacrifices, they're an annual reminder. That's what they become, just an annual reminder of the problem. And yeah, they reset it, but the problem is still there and it comes back next year. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And in fact, people are walking away still feeling guilty about their sins, even in the midst of a reset, even in the midst of a clean slate. Yes, there's a covering. God covers the sins of the people so that it, they can continue to function, but it's really just buying time. It's really just an extension of the lease, if you will. It's not getting at the heart of the problem. Otherwise, the writer says, why, would they stop, why wouldn't they have stopped offering them why do they keep doing this? And, and you can imagine it. Can you, can you, can you picture that? Because, again, it's that annual cleaning once a year, taking it all away. But in your mind, after a while, your junk is still out there. It may be far, far away, but all your stuff is still out there, piling up somewhere. And eventually, it gets so high, it's so large, wherever it is, that stench is going to get back to you. Or maybe you see it because it gets so high in the distance. That's what the writer's getting to is that ultimately it's not gone. And we've all had that experience in our life. Something in our lives that we wanted to get rid of. Have you ever had that experience and you thought you got rid of it and somehow the stench, the sight of it brings it all back? We all experience in our lives in the midst of our, our own attempts for perfection. Whether we sweep it under the rug, stuff it in the closet or just try to doll it up with makeup. We've all experienced when we try to pursue perfection that there just comes a point when Band-Aids don't cut it anymore. When, when something permanent, more than something just like a stopgap, is not only desired, it's necessary. And that's why the writer starts actually by saying the law, what was provided, was only a shadow of the good things that are coming. That was it was only a shadow. 
And that's the good news in the midst of the, the imperfections in the system to realize that was never the point. It was always pointing ahead to something. That's what the writer to Hebrews wants us to understand. And so that's what I want to ask. In what sense was the Day of Atonement, is Leviticus 16, a shadow? What was it? What do we learn from it? What was it helping us to anticipate? And there's three things. Three things from when we looked at it last time I want to bring back up and then show you how the writer of the Hebrews just brings it home. Is the first thing that we realized with the God's gift of the Day of Atonement, as limited as it is, is that we need help. <laughs> That's the first basic insight that the Day of Atonement gives us. We need help with the problem of sin. Sin is so pervasive, it's so extensive, that we can't deal with it ourselves. We need a mediator. That's why the priesthood is created. And that's why beyond the priesthood, the great high priest once a year is the one who has to go where we can't go. To deal with what we can't deal with. But the flaw in the system, as it's laid out in Leviticus 16, is the priests aren't perfect. We need a mediator, but from Aaron on, they're not perfect. And the letter to Hebrews in chapter 5 brings this out. It just comes out and says the priests were subject to weaknesses, just like we were. And if you go and look at Leviticus 16, if you glance at it, you'll see that part of the day was this elaborate ritual before anything happened where the high priest had to basically do a sin offering to cleanse himself in order to be able to do the work of mediation. And that doesn't work. At some point you kind of go, okay, we're just going <laughs> to, I know that guy. You know, I know their history. And that, that, get, that gets to you. You start to wonder. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews says the whole point, that was a shadow that, to remind us we need help. But it was always pointing us to the, the great high priest. Jesus is our great high priest. Hebrews wants us to understand that Jesus is the one that the priesthood was always preparing us for. On the Day of Atonement, if you read in chapter 16, it's, it's really interesting. The high priest, you'll recall, especially had this ornate, elaborate uh, outfit to wear in the day-to-day -day sacrifices to sort of represent the, the tribes of Israel and different things. But on the Day of Atonement, <clears throat> on this day of dealing with all the sins of the people, the high priest takes off their royal robes and puts on these ordinary linens. These ordinary clothes to represent this act of service for the whole community. It's interesting because in Hebrews talking about Jesus as our high priest, as the great high priest, isn't it interesting that there's other places in scripture that talk about Jesus taking off his heavenly robes, his divinity, being who he was to enter into our humanity. Isn't it interesting that we think about this in light of when, when Jesus meets with his disciples for the last time in the Gospel of John. Do you remember what he does? He strips off all of his clothes and simply puts on a tunic and washes their feet. Jesus is our great high priest. But more than that, Hebrews wants you to understand that Jesus is our perfect high priest. And the reason for that is because Jesus is the only one who is holy, blameless, pure. Hebrews 7 says, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, Aaron on, Jesus is without sin, and therefore he is the perfect high priest because he's the only one without need for mediation. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices for his own sins. So he can actually do the work that needs to be done. We need a mediator, and when you need someone to act on your behalf, you want the best person that you can get. You want someone who can do it perfectly, and the only one who can do it perfectly is Jesus. The other thing that we learned from the Day of Atonement from Leviticus 16 is we need a priest, we need mediation, but we also have learned part of that reason is we can't pay the price. We can't pay the price. The sacrifices that we see on a day-to-day -day basis in the ritual of the Day of Atonement, the sacrifices that, that shock and awe us, they show us the cost of sin. Leviticus will spell it out and will say, the cost of sin is life because blood is life. And because blood is life, blood has to be spilled. Sin draws blood. Sin leaves a mark. Sin takes life. And therefore, it's common sense to replace what's been taken Repayment has to be in kind. Life has to be given. But here's the problem in the system. Here's the problem before Jesus. We can't give back what we already owe. We owe everything to God already. It's not like there's some part that's ours that we kind of go, okay, God, I'll let you have this too. It all belongs to God. We can't give back what we don't already owe. Another way to think of it is there's too much blood on our hands. What do we have to offer that we didn't cause this mess in the first place? I mean, we've all experienced this in our lives. Whenever you've had a disagreement with someone, you know, you can sort of deal with the first level of the problem, which is restitution, right? 
Okay, you broke this, I'll get you another one. Okay, you messed this up, I'll clean it up. But the problem that we often don't talk about that makes us uncomfortable is that there's an additional cost. You know, it's not the same one. It's one you, you got another one. The house doesn't look the way it looked before. There's something missing. We can't really describe what it is, but there's something that's taken away. And there's no way for us to fill that. We try. We're haunted by it. It's, it there's no way to go back to the way it was before. We can't pay the price. We can't pay the price. The, the Bible overall puts it this way. We're dead in our sins already. So offering our lives to God means nothing. But that's why Hebrews says Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. We can't pay the price, but Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. In Hebrews, in chapter 10, but this priest, when he offered for all time one sacrifice for sins... Jesus' blood is shed. It's given for the sins of the world, we're told. We can't even deal with ourselves. We can't even pay the price for ourselves. Jesus pays the price for all the sins of the world. How is this possible? Because as the scriptures will say, he who was without sin became sin. Jesus, if you've never thought about this before, embodies not just our humanity, but on the cross he embodies the ultimate manifestation of sin. He, he embodies the net result of sin. And if you don't know what the net result of sin, where does sin lead you? The book of Romans calls it out just like this. The wages of sin is death. Jesus becomes death. And in taking death upon him and footing the bill, paying the price, the full price of sin, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice because in doing so he is pure and blameless as we just talked about. In other words, Jesus offers to God and offers to us what he doesn't owe. And therefore, his sacrifice is perfect because unlike what we are not able to do, Jesus gives more than is taken away. We need a mediator. We need a priest. We need the sacrifice has to be made, but we can't pay the price. And the third thing that we see in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 that Hebrews will draw out for us the significance of is we can't handle the burden. That may sound like paying the price, but it's different. There's two goats. There's one goat that cleans things up, and that's paying the price. Paying the price is, is, is uh, you know, basically fixing things. But bearing the burden is the other goat. There's two goats. And bearing the burden is about taking the consequences. It's not about just fixing. It's like taking the consequences. It's taking responsibility. That's different than paying the price. They may be related, but it's different. And we know this in our lives. When something goes wrong, when something happens, someone has to bear the burden. Someone's got to take responsibility. This is one of the hardest things to teach children. You come home and something has happened. It's there, it's obvious, and you have two kids and they both go, I didn't do it. <laughs> well, it didn't just happen. Somebody did it. Wasn't me. And there it sits until someone takes responsibility for it, right? Otherwise, you sit in this place where it's just sitting there. Someone has to bear the burden, and we can't bear the burden. We know this. Someone has to take responsibility, or if you will, take the blame. The sin has to go somewhere, doesn't it? That's why it's transferred onto the goat. That's why it's so significant that it's put somewhere and taken away. But as I said, the flaw in the system is you just keep putting the sin on another goat, and it goes away, but it's still out there. And so what you begin to realize is that's a temporary thing, but ultimately, who is going to take responsibility for that pile that gets higher and higher and deeper and deeper? I can't. You can't. We don't want to. We can't. And deep down, we know we can't do anything about it, and we know that it stinks. It's a bitter pill to swallow owning just your own stuff, and most of us don't do that well. And so what do we do? Because we can't deal with our own stuff. Mind you, forget anybody else's stuff. We can't deal with our own stuff. We can't deal with the burden. We can't carry it. So what do we do? We blame others. We make others our scapegoat. That's what we do. We can't handle the burden, so we look for scapegoats. Who's your scapegoat? I ask you today, who are you using as your scapegoat? Who are you blaming for the things that are wrong in your life? Who are you blaming for the sins, the mistakes, the accidents, the things that are not right? Who are you blaming? Are you blaming your parents? Whether they're alive and among you, are you blaming your siblings? It's my brother's fault, my sister's fault. Are you blaming your spouse? If only she would just do what I want. Are you blaming your peers? Let's go bigger. Are you blaming Democrats? 
Are you blaming Republicans? Are you blaming those kind of people? Because, beloved, hear what Hebrews has to say. Jesus is the perfect scapegoat. You're looking for a scapegoat, the only scapegoat you can find who can carry the burden is Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the perfect scapegoat because unlike all other scapegoats in our lives, he willingly takes on that role. Jesus bears the burden not because we point fingers and thrust it upon him. Jesus is the perfect scapegoat because he chooses to take all the sins of the world upon himself. You have it there in chapter 10. Sacrifice and offering you didn't desire. You didn't desire to go through the motions. You desired me to take it. And Jesus says in verse 7, I said, here I am. It is written about me. I have come to do your will. I willingly do this. This beautiful picture. This grotesque on one level, but beautiful picture of showing Jesus is the perfect scapegoat. Do you remember Jesus on the cross? And here's us doing what we typically do. Yeah, we stuck you up there. This is all your fault. You created all these problems with Rome. You brought all this junk. You said you were going to rebuild the temple in three days. You said all these things and you can't deliver. And that's why you're up there. And if you are who you say you are, come down and show who you are. Scapegoat at its best. It's his fault. And Jesus is the perfect scapegoat because in that moment, he demonstrates that he willingly takes it on. When in the midst of us pointing fingers, that's not what makes him the scapegoat. What makes him the scapegoat is what he says. Do you remember? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But I do. I know what I'm doing. Jesus is the perfect scapegoat. And do you remember when we looked at Leviticus 16? You remember I talked about the greatest fear within the Israelite community about the scapegoat? Do you remember this? That... You know, you could take the goat far, far away, but what if that goat comes back? You don't want that stuff coming back. And so in tradition of celebrating the Day of Atonement, do you remember what I told you? That what began to happen is the guy who was elected to take the goat away was told, you know, just to make sure this is all good, why don't you take him to a cliff and kick that goat off the cliff, okay? And that literally kicked the goat off the cliff so that goat's not coming back. But you know, still in our minds, we wonder. We wonder. Jesus is the perfect scapegoat because with all other scapegoats, we wonder, are our sins really gone? Has it truly been taken away? But Hebrew says Jesus is the perfect scapegoat because he's the only one who can take away our sins so far that they can never show their ugly face again. He's the perfect scapegoat because he doesn't just carry our sins like all other scapegoats. He's not just a, a vessel for carrying all that junk. Jesus is the perfect scapegoat because he transforms our sins. He changes our sin. He becomes its ultimate manifestation, which is death, but he turns death into life. We're always looking for someone to blame. We're always looking for a scapegoat. What we should, the scapegoat, the only scapegoat we have is Jesus Christ, and he's the perfect scapegoat because he breaks the cycle. Where all we have is blame, Jesus takes our blame and makes it into forgiveness. Verse 17 and 18 here in chapter 10, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. In Jesus Christ, the blame stops, and they have been forgiven. Jesus is the perfect scapegoat because he doesn't just carry our sins, but he transforms blame into forgiveness. So in case you've missed it, what's the good news? Why is this good news? Here it is, and it's right here in Hebrews as well. In Christ, beloved, in Christ, we are perfect. Think I'm making this up? Verse 14. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And I didn't have chairs to read this part, but skip down to verse 19, because I want you to hear a little bit of perfection. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. What's the good news? Oh my God. What's the good news? That in Christ we are perfect. Hear that. In Christ, we are perfect. We have in Christ a clear conscience. We do not have a conscience that is guilty or burdened. We actually have a conscience that is clear so we can have confidence to say what we need to say. We have a conscience that is clear so we can actually hear what we need to hear. 
In Christ, we have sincere hearts. We have hearts that are no longer hard, but in Christ, hearts that are made soft, hearts that are malleable. They can, be, they can have this ever-expanding capacity for love. They're hearts, if you've ever thought about this in Christ, that can't be broken. They can't be broken. We have full assurance of faith. We have full spirits. God fills us with his spirit. We no longer live our lives longing, searching, seeking for what's missing. You have it all. We have full assurance of faith and therefore we are empowered to risk. Or as John used the word instead of faith, trust. We are empowered to trust. Why is this How can we have a clear conscience? How can we have a sincere heart? How can we have full assurance of faith? How do we have all these things? Don't miss it. It's so important, two words. Because all these things are in Christ. We have these things. We are perfect when we are in Christ. When, when Christ is the source, the center of our mind, our heart, and our soul, we are perfect. And the writer here even points to this as the fulfillment of prophecy in verse 16. This is what God said he was going to do all along. He was going to make us perfect. I'm going to write my law in their hearts, and I'm going to write it upon their minds. I'm going to fill them with my spirit. We are perfect in Christ. And it gets even better. Verse 14, we're not just perfect one day. Day of atonement was the perfect day. We are perfect, according to the writer of Hebrews, forever. Not just one day, but for all time, forever. Jesus takes the sins of the world upon himself. He takes the sins of the past. He takes the sins of the present that we're consciously aware of today. And he takes the sins of the future that we haven't even realized. They don't even know are coming yet. Jesus, yesterday, today, and forever, clears it all. There is nothing, beloved, left on us. In Christ, there is no residue, there is no buildup, there is no stain that won't come out. And many of us need to hear that today because we're still dealing with residue in our lives, stains that we think can't come out. There is no more guilt, no more shame, no more fear in Christ. In Christ, there is no break that cannot be reconciled. And we have stuff in our lives that's broken that we still think can't be fixed. There is no stone left unturned in Christ. Christ has rolled away the greatest stone that is. The stone that, that blocks us from our destiny in Christ, our eternal life. There is no more failure in Christ. Failure doesn't exist in Christ. And that's why in verse 13, it, the writer puts it out this way. Jesus sits down at the right hand of God and he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. We are perfect in Christ. Bring it on. What do you got? Jesus has conquered it all. We are perfect in Christ. The curtain has been torn. That moment when Jesus died, the veil of the curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies was ripped in half to demonstrate that the smoke has been lifted forever, that all the habits of sin, all the ways of evil that cloud our lives and veil us from the face of God have been cleared away forever. For the Christian, the promise of the Day of Atonement comes together on Good Friday. And on that day, what we understand is that what was revealed by shadow on the Day of Atonement comes to fullness through the light of Christ. Why? So that we can come into our Father's presence boldly. The question is, why don't we? Why don't we? John made an awesome point. I'm going to come back to it. We all know this. I'm not saying anything you haven't heard before. We all know this. Why aren't we experiencing it? Why? To be honest, because so many of us are still functionally living in the Day of Atonement. So many of us are still existing in the space of Good Friday rather than in the aftermath of Easter Sunday. Too many of us are stuck in that place where we're wondering if our sin can come back. More people than I care to think about right now among us today are choosing to live in the shadow of our past rather than in the light of our future in Christ. We hinted at this the last time we were together, how we can intellectually embrace our forgiveness in Christ, but we don't forgive ourselves. So many of us go even deeper than that. We exist in this space where we're so focused on our own guilt and shame that we become so overwhelmed by the brokenness of the world. There's so much despair in the church today. 
We get so overwhelmed by the brokenness of this world that what actually starts to happen is we actually start to believe that the separation between us and God is getting wider. And I'm here to tell you that no one would say this out loud. None of you would say this out loud, but I have had more than enough person who's come into my office who's pulled me aside privately, and this is rampant in the church. We would never say it out loud, but we are so fixated on our own guilt and our own shame. We are so in despair in the brokenness in the world in which we see. We would never say it out loud, but we actually, some of us, have started to imagine that the cross isn't big enough to bridge the divide. We actually are starting to wonder is the cross enough to get us out of this mess and into the promised land? You know, part of it comes back to a very familiar picture that many of us came to faith with that sort of kind of epitomizes the problem. How many of you came to faith or know this simple picture? It's a, it's a picture where you're on one side and God's on the other side and there's this huge chasm between you and God. And this huge chasm is caused by sin. The story goes with this picture is that we are separated from God by sin. And because of the problem of sin, we can't get to God. And because of the pollution of sin, ugh, God can't get to us. Otherwise, we die. But, and if I had a PowerPoint, thanks to Jesus on the cross, the cross comes down from the top of the... The cross fills the chasm. A bridge is built so we can cross the chasm and be reunited with God. Everyone familiar with this picture? At least you are now the big question. Where is God when we sin? It's the question before we come to faith in Christ and it's the question after we come to faith in Christ. Where is God when we sin? Lots of, do we banish God from our presence when we act disobediently? I've heard teaching like this. You know, when we act disobediently, we banish God from our presence. We push God away. I've, I've perpetuated this idea that God is forced to leave because he cannot endure sinful behavior. All part of this picture. God cannot. We'll sin. This is how we're often taught to think about God. This is, in fact, how we're often taught to think about the cross. We actually have in some of our praise songs theology that goes like this. We're told that when Jesus took upon the sins of the world, God abandoned him because God could not look upon sin. What I'm here to tell you is that picture is wrong. At least it's wrong the way we're telling it, telling the picture. The book of Leviticus, I don't even have to go to the Gospels. The book of Leviticus blows that picture up. Where is God when the priest purges the uncleanness from the people? He's in the midst of their sin. He's in the midst of their sin. What's wrong with Le this picture? Is that Leviticus declares that there's no chasm between God and us. There is no chasm between God and us. The grace of Leviticus, in case you've missed it, is that God's instructions to Moses don't start or continue to be outlined like this. Do all of these things in order to become my people. Leviticus' starting point and foundational premise is because you are my people, live like this. Do this. Do you get that? It's not conditional language. It's not do this so you would be my people. It's covenant language. Do this because you are my people. Beloved, sin doesn't create a chasm between God and us. Sin, Leviticus declares, here's the right picture. Sin, Leviticus declares, and God our Father wants us to understand, creates a chasm, a huge disconnect between who we think we are and who we are meant to be. And our, the cross isn't our means to get to God. The cross is not a bridge for us to get to God. God doesn't wait on the other side for us to get our act together. God comes to where we are. God our Father creates a way in coming to where we are, not only to make us aware of the problem of sin, the chasm that stands before who we think we are and who we're meant to be, but he comes over to the other side to provide a way for us to deal with it. The cross, beloved, is not our way to get to God. The cross is our assurance that God is with us until the bitter end and leads us beyond the veil and the smoke that blinds us to his presence. So where is God when we sin? Exactly where we left him right in the midst of our lives, right in the midst of our brokenness. He's there, anxious to cleanse, unafraid of our disobedience, willing to embrace it all for the sake of cleansing if we would listen to him and we would trust him and follow him. The cross is the place from which God leads us from where we are to where we have always been intended to be, and that's with him. That's with him. God wants us to be with him, in him, with him, through him, 
God wants us to be what we were always created to be, holy as he is holy. And once again, and we've talked about this, holiness is not something that God stands on the other side of the chasm and says, be holy as I am holy. Look, I'm being holy over here. Be holy. Many of us, that's it. How do I copy? No, God our Father is with us from the beginning. He walks with us every step of the way. He comes to where we are and standing with us alongside us in Christ, he says, I am making you holy. We have been made perfect to those he is making holy. Right there in Hebrews. I'm teaching you how to walk with me. I'm giving you what you need to be in relationship with me. Just follow me. Take my hand. Now, in closing, I heard John's sermon very carefully last Sunday. This is one that's fresh in my mind. And it's all about the practical application. What do we do, man? Sometimes there's not a lot to do. It's just to be. But, as fate would have it, in Hebrews chapter 10, if you're looking for something to do, it's right there in verses 23 through 25. What's the practical application? And, again, it's not sexy. It's not going to be the 12-step program that we all want. I'm sorry. It's pretty basic. But it's, it's, it's what, it's, this is the continual what are we called to do. What are we called to do? Right there in verse 23 in chapter 10. The writer says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. What do we do? How do we, how do we embrace this? We hold on to hope. Hope of what? Life. Life. Beloved, what Leviticus brings out for us is that the call of the gospel is not a different kind of life. Sometimes we position it that way, that the gospel is like living, about living differently. Sometimes we even say the gospels are like new life. What Leviticus brings out to us in a profound way is the gospel, the good news, is not a different kind of life. It's not new life. The call of the gospel is to truly live. What I mean is, apart from Jesus, we're dead. There is no life apart from Jesus. There is no different kind of life. There is no new life. There's only life. And if we're not in relationship with this God, if we're not in Christ, we're dead. And so the call of the gospel is that you're dead, but you're meant to be alive. And maybe that's the problem with most of our witnesses, our witnessing as Christians. Maybe that's why we're not experiencing it. Because functionally, for most of us, we're more dead than alive. So many people in the church, I mean, it's amazing the numbers of people that I encounter in the church who struggle with sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. They don't know what to say. They're afraid to share their faith. They secretly confess that they know they're saved. John tapped into this last week. They know they're saved, but they don't feel like they're saved. And maybe the reason for this is because most of us are mostly dead rather than more and more alive. And what does being more and more alive look like? Holding on to hope. Beloved, hear this this morning. If you're trying to pay Jesus back, if you're trying to pay Jesus back, be square with Jesus. If you're trying to do your fair share for the kingdom, anything along that ilk, hear this. Your hope isn't in Christ. Your hope is in yourself. And if your hope is in yourself, late-breaking newsflash, you're hopeless. You're hopeless. You're not hopeful. You're hopeless because you're fighting a losing battle. Apart from Christ, death wins. Death always wins. Apart from Christ, death wins. Death always wins. But in Christ, in Christ, in relationship to Jesus Christ, following, listening, paying attention to, being in love, madly, passionately, deeply obsessed with Jesus Christ, the person, not the idea of Jesus Christ, there is hope because in Christ there is life. In Christ we are perfect. Hold on to that hope unswervingly, the writer puts. The second thing is spur one another on to love and good deeds. If you're living in Christ, if you're seeking, listening, sharing, trusting, abiding in Jesus, then here's the thing. Don't overthink this. If you're truly living in Christ, then your life is your witness. If we're living in Christ, our life is our witness. Not your words, your life. Not your church attendance, your life. Not your knowledge of scripture, your life. Life in Christ is about sharing in the love of Christ. It's about being an encourager. It's about spurring each other to live out the hope that we have, the goodness that is ours in Jesus Christ. People are drawn to this kind of life. People hunger for this kind of life. 
And they do because we get a lot of death in our world. Death is cheap. Death is everywhere. But real life, true life, life in Christ is costly and precious. Life in Christ changes things. So I ask you this morning, are you living or are you dying? If you're living, are you spurring others on? Are you an encourager? Are you pointing to the hope? Breathing hope in given situations, encouraging, seeing the good rather than all the things that are not right. And what brings it all together, clinging to that hope, spurring one another on is my favorite part. You'll see why in a second. What binds it all together is let us not give up meeting together. The author writes in Hebrews, what holds it all together, what brings it is worship. Worship. Worship is about living rather than dying. And worship, as you see here in Hebrews 10, is a habit. Worship is a habit that's learned by meeting together. But it's about learning the right habit. Guys, we've talked about this before, but here it comes again. You want to know if you're still living in the Day of Atonement? You want to know if you're still stuck on Good Friday? You know how you can tell? You can tell because if you're still living the Day of Atonement, then worship for you, weekly worship, is just hitting the reset button. It's coming to get your Sunday refill. It's coming to get your Sunday refill, wipe the slate clean, clear the decks, and then going out and having all the stuff put upon you that just weighs upon you, and then you also live in totally differently than what you profess to your faith is in Christ. You're not living out of that perfection. You're living out of your belief that you're imperfect. You're living out of this belief of all the things that the world puts upon you. And then you show up on Sunday, and it's rinse and repeat. Hit the reset button back. That's living in the Day of Atonement. You come, you get your communion, you get your music, you get your prayer, and you go back out, and then you're back the next week. That's not the right habit. That's not the right habit of worship. I've tried to say this so many different times. That's not the right focus. And here's why. A person once told a pastor after a church service, you know, I didn't get much out of worship today. To which the pastor replied, we weren't worshiping you. Church, hear it. Hear it, hear it, hear it. It is not about refilling your tank, hitting the reset button. It, it, that sounds great, but if you really strip it down, it's functionally about worshiping you or me worshiping me. The focus of our worship, the right habit of our worship is about coming together to be in relationship to Jesus, being in Christ. In other words, we don't worship the cross. Many of us are in love with the cross, don't be in love with the cross. Be in love with Christ. The cross is a vessel. The cross is a vehicle. The cross is a symbol. Be in love with Christ. There are too many Christians that love to sing about the cross. Oh, I love the cross. Awesome. Love Christ. The cross is an inanimate object. Christ is a real person. He will stretch you. He will challenge you. He will turn your life upside down. The cross is something you can wear. On your neck, as a tattoo, you can stick it on your Bible. It doesn't ask much of you. Jesus asks everything. He gives you everything. Beloved, the focus of our worship, why we come together, is not so that we can again get the cross branded on ourselves again and feel good about ourselves. We come together to learn, to practice how to live together through the hope that's ours in Christ. To spur each other on towards love and good deeds in Christ. We come together every week to basically put ourselves in Jesus' presence and to wrestle with the same questions every week. How well do we know Jesus? How well do we know Jesus? Are we experiencing Jesus in our life? What does that look like? What does that mean? Worship should push us to those places outside of what we've prepared of experiencing Jesus in our life. Are we letting Jesus in? Are we giving him access are we surrendering it all? Are we trusting him? Worship is about being together to learn and practice what that looks like. It's about encouraging, convicting, and inspiring us to make this the habit of our lives. Beloved, that's what our worship is about. We are perfect forever. I know so many, I, look, I'm look, I can't look up because there are so many of you that I know that are struggling with trying to be perfect. It literally is killing you. You don't have to try to be perfect. 
You are perfect in Christ. And then there are the rest of you that I look at who have that glazed look in your eye, that sort of aloof, oh, I don't play that game because nobody's perfect. Get back in the game. Get back in the game. Get out of that cave that you're living in. Get out of those glasses that you wear that sees everything through that film and realize that you are perfect in Christ. And that perfection only goes where Jesus is. So if you get away from Jesus, yes, you're not perfect anymore. But if you're where he is, you are perfect. And so you don't have to pursue it anymore. You don't have to obsess about it anymore. You can live, live out of that confidence, that assurance. Let's pray. (sighs) Loving Father, Dad, what we see here in Leviticus, what we never expected to see, is that the foundation is laid for the cross. We, we anticipate the cross later, but Lord, we see here you're building the cross right here in the pages of Leviticus. All those weird things, those rituals, those practices that we think that we're so much more civilized that we think are so archaic, that put us off. Lord, in the midst of all that weirdness, all those things that seem so strange to us, we realize you're laying the foundation for Jesus. You're laying the foundation for you to become what we are so that we might become what he is. Father, we recognize today, we acknowledge it, we say it out loud, nothing separates us from you. You don't need a bridge to get to us. Instead, our perspective is shifted and we realize you build a bridge. You chose the cross as a way to lead us through death into life, to set us straight, to teach us to live, to be all that we were created to be. Father, help us. Help us. Teach us not to seek perfection apart from you, Not to give up on perfection, but to live out the perfection that you bring through your son Christ. Teach us to worship you, not by filling our tank or just hitting the reset button in our lives, but guide us in our worship by helping us to learn and to follow Jesus in truly living, in bringing it all, in glorifying you with all of it, in experiencing you in all of it, realizing that there's no aspect of our lives that you're not present and that you don't want to be a part of. We want to worship you, as Jesus said, in spirit and in truth. We don't know how to do that on our own. And so we rejoice. We fall on our knees and we rejoice that we don't have to. That in Christ, in your son, we have the perfect high priest. That in Christ, your son, we have the perfect sacrifice. That in Christ, your son, even have a perfect scapegoat. We rejoice that in him, through him and with him, as hard as it is for us to believe, we can and are being made perfect forever. Help us to live that out, Lord. Help us to be true to who you created us to be in the power of your spirit for the sake of your kingdom in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said,